Welcome to the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, where it's all about slashing your debt, slashing your taxes, and creating a liberated lifestyle. And now, your host, who met his wife while training for the 400 meters in Seattle and is eating gluten-free while lusting after bread, Dave Denniston. And there it is, one of the new introductions. Welcome back, my friend. This is Dave Denniston, your host of the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you slash your debt, slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle. Well, I am so stoked to have new things happening this year. First, first you heard this one of the new introductions. In a moment, I'll play you the other introduction. And because this is your show, I want to make sure to have feedback from you. Which of these two introductions do you like? The guy with the black voice and the funky music or the gal with the British voice and the other introduction? So let me know. So you'll hear that other introduction in just a second. But let me tell you, I'm so excited for you to hear this podcast today. In this podcast today, you are going to have another fireside chat, my friends. And in this podcast, you're going to be learning from this family business physician about the change that's happening in the digital healthcare economy. You're going to discover why he feels medicine was a secure profession, but he isn't so sure about that now. Also, my friends, you're going to discover how he advises young physicians who have six figures in student debt. What the heck to do about all that? And if you have kids, learn his one suggestion that if they're going to go to medical school, how to keep low costs up front. And finally, his daughter, he had suggested her not to go to medical school, but I have a hint for you. She didn't listen. In just a moment, find out why. And with that, here is the show. Welcome to the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, where it's all about slashing your debt, slashing your taxes, and creating a liberated lifestyle. And now, your host, who met his wife while training for the 400 meters in Seattle and is eating gluten-free whilst lusting after bread, Dave Denniston. My name is Dave Denniston, your host. Welcome back to the latest episode of the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast. Well, welcome back to our monthly fireside chat with a physician to get to know their journey, their joys, and their struggles with finances and outside of finances. Well, this show, my friends, it's not always about actionable content. It is, however, a chance for you to see behind the curtains and to walk inside another person's shoes, to experience their lives. Our next guest, he's a physician, he's a fellow podcaster, he's been a blogger. He had said, I have lived my life in healthcare. I grew up in a medical household, later I got an MD, now in midlife, I am saddened. I am dismayed. America is the wealthiest country in the world, yet we often bankrupt our citizens when they become ill. We cure what seems to be incurable, but then abandon than many others. Care is often replaced by technology. So we're going to dive into that a little bit today. And he's on a mission with his content to bring together all of these different places and pieces, the people, the systems that define healthcare. 
and to have heart-to-heart conversations to make changes in the system. He is a professor of neuroradiology at the Barrow Neurological Institute, a chief medical officer, and a husband and a father. I can't wait to hear about his journey. Please help me welcome Dr. Alan Pitt. Welcome, Alan. Dave, thank you very much for having me. Oh, so glad to have you here. Well, you know, if you have the first name, Alan, you must be good. That's that's my dad's first name. Spelled the same way, too. <laughs> well, he economized on his letters then. No double L. <laughs> all, all those things. Well, I'm just so glad you're, you're here to share with us your wisdom and your journey. And as you know, this podcast is about empowering physicians to have the knowledge they can slash their debt, slash their taxes, and live a labored lifestyle. But for me, before we get into advice, I'd just love to get to know our guests more. So tell us, Alan, a little bit more about you. Uh, we'd mentioned in the introduction, you came from a medical household. Where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? Yeah, so I, uh, I grew up, I was born in Philadelphia. Uh, my father's also a physician. He trained at Jefferson Medical College. It's now called something else. I can't remember. They got a bunch of money in and uh, the largest medical school in the country has a new name, Sydney, something or other medical school. But uh, uh, my father had been in the military in the 60s, and uh, both he and my mother uh, really enjoyed Arizona for his military training. And so he came out to be one of the uh, early members of the University of Arizona Medical School in Tucson, and we moved out to Tucson in 1971, uh, really before the medical school itself was uh, completed. Uh, he was there as faculty. And so I grew up in a small town uh, south of Phoenix. It's gotten a little bit bigger, but still, I think it's the biggest small town in America, Tucson, Arizona. And uh, from there, uh, went on to uh, do uh, university training at Stanford and then came back to the University of Arizona, frankly, because it was the cheapest place to do medical training. Um, And then uh, went on to do uh, a year of internal medicine, uh, two years of neurology, four years of radiology, Two more years of uh, neuroradiology. It's a very long road, as my wife would tell you. Uh, and um, and uh, have come back to the Barrow Neurologic Institute to be faculty. And I've been here since 2000. Um, before uh, the Barrow, I spent three years in private practice up in the Seattle area. I have very fond feelings and good friends up in Seattle. Um, and um, still, uh, still think of Seattle fondly, but I have a, quite a unique practice here at the Barrow. Uh, where I get to not only practice, but uh, train residents and fellows, uh, do research, and and frankly, to pursue some of my interests in innovation. Well, that, that sounds like you're, you're a man of many seasons, a man of many hats. I would love to know, as you're growing up and you're around medicine, were you seeing your dad in clinic quite often, or what was the, the influence that medicine played in your life growing up? Yeah, you know, it's funny. So uh, my father uh, started as an internist uh, in his training. He was going to be a, an internal medicine resident. And at that time, uh, I was I came along, I was a, you know, just a newborn, and he had a moonlight. And the director of his program uh, couldn't pre- prevent them from moonlighting. So what he did was he went from every fourth night call to every third night call. And basically, my father tells the story that he got so sleep-deprived that he just thought that if this was my life, I couldn't go on. And that caused him to change from internal medicine to radiology, which led to you know a long and a very prosperous career path for him. He was a pretty well-known academic and just retired last year at the age of uh, 78 from the University of Alabama. 
But as a child, he, he did take me, uh, sometimes when he would work on weekends, he would take me in to see what he was doing because he loved what he was doing, looking at the radiographs, the, you know, what the commonly people referred to as x-rays. He would say that they're never uh, x-rays because those are the beams. He would say they're radiographs. And I found that to be probably the most boring thing one could do, literally. As a child looking over his shoulder, I would see what he was doing, and I thought, who would want to do this for a living, sit in a dark room and look at these pictures? I didn't have enough sense to realize that the pictures told, you know, they were pictures of a thousand words, and there was a lot there. Um, but fundamentally, didn't see radiology as a career path, and, and frankly, that led to my choice of neurology as an initial career path, and that was somewhat of a long road, and only came back to radiology uh, as I progressed in my professional career. Um, I would also tell you that I, I think that um, certainly the public kind of thinks that you have a calling to medicine. I'm not, I'm not sure if it was a calling for me. It was something more um, that I would say is the family business. So my, my father had ended up in, in medicine. Uh, we had had a lot of conversations when I was growing up about medicine's a good career. It's interesting. You get to help people. And frankly, it's secure. It's a, you know, you're not going to make a million dollars but you're going to make enough money that you're going to be secure. And that's changing a little bit now. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. So sure. medicine today, there, there's a lot of concerns with reimbursements and, and Medicare and some of the implications of the Affordable Care Act and EMRs and, and all of these different things that are causing doctors often to spend less time with patients and more time doing other stuff that, that they don't like. So what do you see on that today in terms of uh, some of these? You mentioned earlier that, that you're helping to train some residents and fellows sure. at, at Barrow. What is that looking like from your perspective as you look at medicine going forward? Yeah, Dave, you know, uh, good intentions don't always end up with good results. So um, I think in the last two decades, and I've lived a very interesting time in healthcare where we've gone from paper and film to really a digital economy in healthcare. And um, that transition has had some good things, but it's had a lot of bad things. So where I felt uh, when I was a medical student resident early in my career, things were fairly secure. You were going to have a pretty good income and uh, you'd have a relatively comfortable life. It wasn't the, the easiest life. Uh, and certainly there were people that my children went to school with who made a, m a lot more money than I did. But it was, you know, it's a, it's a good life. I now look out forward and through the eyes of my daughter, who's a third year medical student and her classmates, and I don't see the same level of security. I often talk to my residents and fellows who I train and I talk to them about their lives, how they're looking uh, at the future. Uh, the majority of them seem to have something in the neighborhood of 200,000 to $250,000 of debt. That's pretty much uh, the minimum um, that if you don't, you're not supported, you could get through. Uh, some of them have up to five hundred thousand dollars of debt, and uh, could, because if you if you don't have parental support for college or medical school, certainly if you go to a private university for uh, either of those, you're quickly going to run into uh, high debt. And if you think about that debt burden, and at the rates of, in, of uh, interest, which are uh, yeah, very high, right? And they're, they're, you can't put them against your taxes and you can't wash them out. Um, that's a huge debt burden to carry 
for folks um, where uh, certainly primary physicians, you know, 200, 250 would be a very reasonable salary. And when you think about the fact that um, you're getting to your early to mid 30s when you're done training, a lot of times medical schools won't take you until you've been out and working for two to three years. So you may be in the early to mid 30s. Um, you're probably, you, you know, there's a good chance you're married with children of your own. You'd like to buy a home. Um, you'd like to start living your life because you've just spent uh, a decade working really hard uh, with long, long hours. And so now you have, say, a quarter million dollars, at, as you mentioned, 6.8. So what is that? About 25000 a year just to service the debt, let alone the, the capital against that. You know, the, the, I, don't, I don't know that we can continue doing this and ask our best and brightest to pursue a passion to take care of others while still uh, burdening them with, with this much debt. I, I, I feel very badly for that. So that, that's the problem, I guess. What, what do you see as the solution to this issue? Yeah, so, um, so a couple of things I think that, uh, that we need to think about. First and foremost, I think um, if you're thinking about going into medicine as a career, I think you need to make your choices on the front end as low cost as possible. So I think that uh, depending on your situation, your family situation, you need to, if you think you're going to go to medical school or go into the health professions, you need to consider a state university rather than a private university. There's a lot of push for some of these um, really bright kids who are going to end up in healthcare to want to go to uh, a brand name university for their undergraduate degree. They have to weigh the costs of that university um, against the value proposition of the brand. And yes, I think it is slightly easier to get into medical school if you're a little unique. You didn't go to your state university, but you have to balance that against the fact that you're probably going to take on an additional $150,000, maybe $200,000 in debt. If you're going to go to medical school, they call you the same, the exact same at the end of medical school, whether you went to Stanford or Harvard or whether you went to the University of Arizona. They call you a doctor. And so... I would encourage folks who are thinking about the brand of that medical school, whether that helps them get ahead. And I would tell you, it probably doesn't. It's certainly not worth the difference in expense. So I would limit your debt burden as much as possible. Let's let's break this down because a lot of physicians are like yourself, where they come from a physician family. They might have kids if they don't come from a physician family that are interested in medicine because they see their parents being in medicine. So for you and in your situation with your daughter, what's her journey been like and how have you advised and prepared her for, for this journey she's on now? Well, that was an interesting story. So when my daughter, uh, she went to Vanderbilt. So her peer group drove her to a brand and frankly, we had a very, she had, and we as a family had a very good experience with Vanderbilt. We thought it was a very good school. She met a lot of uh, great people there and, and had a great experience. She then said, you know, I, and she had joint degrees in economics and molecular biology. Um, and uh, she came to, my wife is also a physician, by the way. She came to us and uh, she said, I want to I go into medicine. And um, my wife's a, a little more understated than I am. But I said, look, you know, I think you really need to think about that decision really hard. Uh, have you thought about going to nursing school? It's a much shorter road 
and I tend to work for a bunch of nurses. My hospital CEO is a nurse. The regional CEO is a nurse. I said, nurses run my world. Um, they end up in, in, in a, uh, an RN degree is a great degree, is an entry degree into healthcare. And she said, you know, I can't do that. Both my parents are doctors, and I just, I can't, I can't do that. I said, okay. I said, well, have you thought about anything else? Have you thought about you could do this or that, the other things? And finally, my, my daughter turned to me and said, you know, Dad, she said, um, tell me what's good for my generation. She said, what do you want me to be? You want me to be a lawyer, a PhD? You want me to go into sales? What do you want me to do? There, my generation, there's nothing that's great. There's nothing, there's no obvious great choice. And she said, at least in going into healthcare, I will have a uh, good career. I'll be able to help people. I'll have a roof over my head. She said, what's wrong with that? She said, yeah, I'll take on some debt, but I'll have a good career. So why are you trying to deflect? Why are you trying to tell me not to do this? And you know what? She was right. She was right. And so she's embraced her career. I've embraced her career. And, and she's now a third-year medical student. And she's trying to figure out her specialty area. Um, my wife and I, you know, we have a, you know, we're fairly comfortable. But we, we basically told all of our children that we would give them a quarter million dollars, which is a huge amount of money, which we didn't have. And we said, look, this is how much money we can give you for your education. Once that's gone, it's gone. And so you have to make choices that you think are best for you uh, based on whether you want to go to state university, graduate school, all of that. Now, we're, we're helping her a little bit with medical school, but fundamentally, she's kind of bootstrapping that. I have a, some guilt, by the way, about that because uh, um, my parents pretty much funded my medical education, except for very small amounts. Um, the cost of going to a private university and medical school um, is, a, is an overwhelming amount of money for most families. It's just a crazy amount of money. And, um, you know, because we're relatively high earners, we don't really qualify for financial aid, which is often the case. So uh, I think uh, doctors who often have their children in medical school have to have a, a mature conversation around what are what's the expense side of this choice and how do you want to handle it? Uh, well, when you look at the that incredible commitment that you made to your daughter, I mean, do you do you think of the impact of that at all? You know, in terms of how that that impacts you down the road, or or is it just something that you and your wife? You know, what our parents helped us. We're just so committed to it. It doesn't matter what it takes. You know, we're going to make this happen. What does that look like? Uh, well, first of all, you know, my the thing I'm most proud of in the world are, are my children. Um, my my children bring me more joy than than anything else. Um, all, all of my children, I'm, I'm proud of all of them. They're, they're all successful in their own way. Um, and I want to support them in any way possible. And I think that's true of, of, of most parents, that um, they value their children above all else. Um, that being said, um, we are um, at the higher end of the earners in terms of, of uh, physicians. We're, uh, I, I'm a radiologist. Um, my wife is a radiologist as well, but she works part-time. But we're at the higher end of that scale. I think for uh, some physicians who uh, make far less, it's just not something they could do to actually support their children uh, through 
uh, undergraduate and medical school. And in fact, when I talk to my, my fellows uh, about that choice, I say, well, how did you feel about your parents and where did, where did the, it stop where there was uh, financial support? And most of them kind of said, you know, they got me through college, but um, it was on me to get through med school and I was okay with that. I think that that's probably a reasonable stopping place. Many, many of us uh, in midlife have to figure out how do we balance standing up our children versus making certain our children don't have to pay for us when we're old. And so you're kind of constantly uh, weighing some of those decisions. Um, you, well, know? And you, look at, you look at your dad's career because he loved medicine and he worked until he's 78. Is that something that you and your wife are are aiming for, you know, because you love medicine so much, you just see yourself staying in it for a long time. Is that something for your situation? You see yourself doing modeling what your dad did or what's that like? So my dad's career was sort of interesting. Um, he and I had lots of conversations around it and he was just very fortunate. So my father had his, you know, the first half of his career, he was uh, at the University of Arizona as a professor of radiology. And then um, really almost at the peak of his career, he got a call out of nowhere to go to the University of Alabama in Birmingham. And uh, he had some trepidation about leaving the, the Southwest to go to the Southeast. But the move to Alabama was an extremely good one for him. He had really a tremendous amount of support from the chairman. He was at university departments all along the way. A tremendous amount of support from uh, Dr. Stanley initially who brought him on, but then a series of chairmen um, up through and including particularly his last chairman, uh, Dr. Sherry Cannon, um, who saw the value in my father as a teacher, as an educator for those residents. And, it, and he and I had a lot of conversations because radiology has become more and more onerous over time. The workload has continued to increase. And I'm not saying it hasn't increased for other specialties as well, but radiology, the workload has really gone up dramatically in terms of what it was 20 or 30 years ago. And uh, he and I had conversations around it. He went to, to Dr. Cannon, the chairman, and said, look, I am not uh, willing to work at the pace that's really required of full-time faculty. But I think I have some value to bring to the department. And this is what I would propose, that I reduce my volume. I dedicate a lot of my efforts to teach the residents, which is something that many of the faculty uh, don't have time to do anymore, or they may not have the skill set to do anymore because my father is a, was really an expert in um, uh, film, you know, the radiographs as opposed to MRI. And it's a very important part of radiology education, but not something that um, younger radiologists really have ownership of. That's, you know, as MRI and CT have replaced radiography, plain films, um, they'd be, they'd, the teaching of that has, has, has taken a backseat. Dr. Cannon was open and wise and innovative enough to figure out a path that would work for the department as well as my father. And that extended his career a good five to seven years. Do I believe that I'll be practicing as a neuroradiologist when I'm in my 70s? Frankly, no, I, I don't think I'll do that. Um, I, I, I like to work. I believe I will be working doing something, but my life is even now uh, is a mix of my clinical practice in neuroradiology and also my other interests in medical innovation. And I'm spending 
a lot more time in the medical innovation uh, side of late. And uh, that's kind of eating away at the traditional clinical responsibilities. You know what? So tell, tell us about that, the, the innovation side where you're a chief medical officer. What, what led to that happening, Alan? How, how has that happened? Sure. Well, you know, I, and I don't know if you have others in your audience, but, uh, you know, I tell people that you reach midlife and you start drinking, you have an affair or you find a new job. And uh, I, I'm not a good drinker. I tend to fall asleep. And I love my wife. <laughs> I've, I've been with her. We'll be married 29 years next year. And Congratulations. I, I, thank you very much. And I can't see getting divorced. So the third option is finding a new job, finding new interests, finding something that captures my imagination. And, and frankly, I think if you're good at whatever you do, uh, towards midlife, you begin to question, is that all there is? So... Um, I, I uh, in my career as a resident, I was able to live through the transition from film to digital. So radiology was migrating from reading on film to reading on computers uh, at the end of my residency, beginning of my fellowship in the mid-90s. I was very fortunate to be something of an outlier. I was at the right place at the right time. And I got a broad exposure to uh, health IT from uh, the, that transition from film to digital. I built somewhat of a, a second career or an area of interest in the PAC space or picture archiving and communication system, the computers in radiology, how we look at images. Built a bit of a career on that, uh, got to know lots of people. And then I took that until around uh, 2004, 2005 and became really interested in how could computers move more than just images? How could they move an entire clinical visit in a cost-affordable way. I uh, began uh, thinking about that, writing about that, talking to others. Uh, I was, again, fortunate. I, you know, I believe you have to have the people that you come in contact with have a great influence on your likelihood of success. I have a very good friend um, that we trained together as neuroradiologists back in the 90s, uh, Dr. Shez Partovi. Uh, he and I uh, are very close friends. Um, Shez, you know, they, they say it takes two to build anything. So Shez is truly a brilliant person in medicine and computers. He has advanced degrees, not only in medicine, but also computer science. He had built some companies even as far back as when he was a resident. We became friends in our fellowship at the Barrow and remain friends. All right, my friends. Well, that wraps up the interview for today. I hope you gained some great stuff out of this. I just love learning about physicians and everything that they encounter because I believe we can learn from these experiences. Thank you again so much for everything that you do. From the bottom of my heart, I believe in you. I believe you have a great financial future ahead of you. Apply these lessons, my friends, that you learn in these podcasts. And don't be afraid to ask for help. And as always, I'd love to know your feedback, your comments. Make sure to email me, Dave, at drfreedompodcast.com. And I promise you I will get back to you within two business days whenever you email me. Whatever you got, whatever's on your mind, let me know. I'd love to talk to you. Love to help. Signing off for now. Talk to you later.